we're covering small business Saturday, y'all. That's what we're doing. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Work stoppage uh, officially coming out as pro small business, just like the UK Labor Party. We are changing the orientation of the show to Blairism, folks. Everyone's favorite third way. (laughs) That's right. We're going. This is a podcast now, completely devoted to the economic teachings of seminal film, The Blair Witch Project. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) The only Blair that I care to understand. No, I mean, that would be funny, though, right? Like uh, a full pivot and we're like tips and tricks for Black Friday. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the 13 uh, pilgrim themed table settings to please your aunt and uncle this year. Just like destroy everything we stand for in one like BuzzFeed listicalized <laughs> like all of those lot. things that you all those electronics you wanted to buy but now can't afford because you've been put out on the street by your job <laughs> why small business exemptions for labor laws are good actually <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, surprise, it's not April 1st, it's not Bizarro World. This is your regular work stoppage for the week. This is your favorite, hopefully, labor news podcast. Uh, We're entirely listener-supported, so thank you so much if you do throw us a little money on Patreon. If you don't, it's not a big deal. We totally understand. If you're not in the Discord, shame on you. Get in the Discord, look at the memes from the meme review, and you get opportunities to chat with our great community and ourselves. And please leave us a five-star review uh, either on Apple Podcasts or just write it on parchment paper, roll it up in a bottle, and (laughs) toss it into the sea. That's Um, right. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we're going to start... As always with Amazon, <laughs> pretty much, <laughs> we're going to go right to the heart of the matter. Uh, Amazon is union busting in Staten Island and the election petition that they've been uh, going for there has been temporarily rescinded. What's the deal with that? Yeah. So uh, I was looking into this and there, I haven't been able to find a ton of great information Mm-hmm. Uh, because most of what I got off of this was either like from ALU's tweets or from people in the replies in ALU's tweets, like, okay, like kind of attacking them. And, um, so just trying to draw information out of that. Basically, well, I I remember when we, when we originally covered them filing for this, uh, this election in Staten Island we were already a little unclear because Amazon had decided that there were what 25 million people who worked <laughs> yeah. at one factory and that uh we said oh it's not entirely clear you know based on the 2000 cards that they got uh about how many people are actually working there because of like we saw in the Amazon drive uh that there is a an inflation from the company and that mostly focused around the turnover process it makes it difficult to understand what's going on for everyone except for Amazon which yeah. they purposefully don't tell us anything about yeah like so basically the way that it's been described is that like because as you were saying, Amazon has always inflated the size of the bargaining unit as high as they could get it. Um, 
And ALU was coming in with already kind of just over the threshold to begin with. So they were already a little thin there. Right. Um, but then the thing with it was a bit confusing is that in their post, they talk about part of the reason why they are withdraw. They rescinded their petition for a election was because of Amazon firing organizers, which we're going to talk about and they have done. And that is bad. and That is disruptive. But like, when you file for an NLRB election, the like labor list, like the list freezes. So like if Amazon fires people, they don't get like pulled off the list of eligible employees. Like not that, you know, that makes things any easier for their life after being fired. Right. But from the perspective of, of, of getting the number of cards you need to go forward with a union, I don't think that should be a, a deal breaker, but Considering that they were already like relatively thin, I, I think basically yeah. what it is 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 recognizing that with the large turnover, with the strength of, of Amazon's union busting campaign, they needed to kind of circle the wagons and, and, and like, uh, you know, try and 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 regroup and and come back after a certain amount of time with a bigger after they've been able to do some more organizing, try and maybe try out some new tactics and then come back with a bigger set of cards. And it does go into one of the things that I, we've talked about a couple of times about that debate between like affiliating with a major union, which, you know, sometimes can be fraught because as we talk about all the time, a lot of the major unions can be reluctant to work with in new facilities. They can, uh, you know, have business friendly uh, negotiating tactics. So there are issues that some folks, you know, don't want to associate with a new union. They want to do an independent one, but that also, you know, carries its own issues because then you're trying to do everything from scratch. You may not have access to a lot of resources, especially things like labor lawyers. Uh, so I, it's it from the resources that I was able to get on this, uh, on why the, the petition was rescinded. I wasn't able to get a ton of details, but I, I think it sounds like it's a mixture of all, of all these factors yeah. of, of just, they had just barely cleared that threshold for eligibility in the first place, combined with some issues with perhaps a little bit of, of inexperience and lack of resources for organizing. And then obviously, as we're gonna about to get into, Amazon's uh, known long history of, of harsh union busting tactics. Right. Well, and I mean, also, as much as some of those workers might still technically have been eligible to come in and vote in the union election, it's pretty hard to mobilize people who aren't coming to right. the facility on a day-to-day Absolutely. basis anymore anyway. And a lot of them probably ended up moving away when they lost that job. I know sure. a lot of people who are like, you know, if I ever quit this job, I'm moving to, you know, California or Houston or Portland or New York or whatever. And a lot of people do. So there's that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I know that I, I ended I moved back home after I lost my job one mm-hmm. time, you know, you just, you're no longer there. And it's just yeah. what happens. So, so and just to get into the 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 attacks on the the organizers that that we've mm-hmm. seen from Amazon we got a whole big list here um so first off early last week uh while organizers with the ALU were out on public property the same place where they have been doing organizing and talking to workers outside the facility not on Amazon's property mm-hmm. uh they were uh, accosted by the NYPD who were called by Amazon who arrested one of the organizers and held them for a couple hours and then released them without charge, which is a very, you know, common intimidation tactic 
mm-hmm. by the police where they're just like, well, we can just screw up what you were doing and not charge you with anything. And then what are you going to do? <laughs> right. And they've also, you know, they've been firing multiple organizers that in, in particular, one organizer, Daquan Smith was fired for organizing and ALU has filed an unfair labor practice with the NLRB demanding that he be rehired and that he get back pay. But as we know, that's that a two process. to three year process. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah and in, in the interim, Amazon has been stepping up their daily captive audience meet. Well, stepping up their captive audience meetings to uh, being a daily affair. And the audio of those has gone around on Twitter uh, a couple of times and they're pretty fucking aggressive. Yeah. Like uh, Amazon here, I think, is taking more of the the Littler Mendelssohn style approach than perhaps mm-hmm. like the the culture consulting that we talked about last week with with HelloFresh, the very corporate detached approach, but also bringing in like you know some unbiased sources on, that people should be looking at, like telling people to go to unionfacts.org where they can go find out anything they need to know about unions and, and just decide for themselves. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that, that's a... Basically, if people aren't familiar with that website, what they do is they get all of the, you know, presume, like the public information, like the pay rates of organizers, and they use that against organizers. They use all sorts of information, though. Uh, sometimes you can find information about union busters on there. Uh, yeah. But uh, but that's not as uh, as as prominent as one of the thing or as prominent of a thing that they do. Yeah, but I mean, it says here that they're part of a constellation of uh, anti labor websites that are run by anti union groups, <laughs> including a website called LaborPains.org, which is just like it, it's it's too frivolous to even be a proper dig at labor you know what i yeah. mean like it's just goofy <laughs> yeah it's like at least unionfacts.org seems like it's got that level of plausible deniability to it right but these other ones that are were made by the same you know group of shady black money funded uh like NGO types, like laborpains.org and seiuexposed.com. Like these are all funded by the same corporate interests and they're all pushing that, that same concept of like, we're just giving you the facts. And by facts, we mean, you know, distortions and lies about, about yeah. what unions are. Or, or even just like mischaracterizations, because one of the things that I remember from the union busting campaign that I went through is the amount that the union buster harped on the fact that uh, the organizer made like 55K a year or something like that. Just like, y'all don't make this much. This person's clearly just like an outside agitator or some bullshit like that. And then like, I was like. 55,000 a year is not a huge amount. No. No. Absolutely not. Well, and do you think they're not going to pay union dues either? Or like they're going to somehow pocket all the money? Or It's just ridiculous. Yeah. I love to have the people making, you know, $400,000 a year as anti-union consultants telling me not to listen to somebody because they make 55K. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But... As as John was saying, like with this leaked audio, we have you know gotten to hear a little bit of what's been going on in, in inside those those meetings, and it does at least seem like one thing that is you know was nice to hear. There's a lot of pushback going on in those meetings with, from 
folks associated with the ALU, like specifically one thing that they uh, <laughs> were, you know, resisting was Amazon keeps characterizing these meetings as, you know, we're just trying to be honest with the workers and give you all the information. And and so one of the workers in the leaked audio responded with, quote, not to call you guys out, but you guys are always open and honest with us. I find that very false, especially during COVID. I mean, come on, man. People get COVID here every day. <laughs> yeah. True. Yeah. And uh, then also them uh, railing is like, you know, the union is a third party and they're like, yeah. no, we are the union. And then they're like, no, if you look at it with lock, with logic and reason, they're technically, <laughs> even if it is all of the workers, they're technically a, an association that isn't part of Amazon and won't be because they're just denying that the union even exists for, for in a certain sense. But then saying that like the idea that you could create a group of workers within the workplace is is it's possible for that to be a third party even though it is directly the workers that are part of the workplace some some real ben shapiro ass shit yeah i mean you got to use your reason you got to consult reason magazine issue 525 (laughs) page 13 and you'll see in this article by um uh you know david coke uh co-authored by um nicholas yeah whatever the Starbucks guy is or any fucking billionaire. They'll write an article about like why unions are actually choking out free enterprise. And I'm like, I wish I'd love to see unions (laughs) choke out free enterprise. (laughs) Yeah. And the other thing though, that uh, the ALU organizers were pointing out about the captive audience meetings was that Amazon has clearly been using them as a way to basically conduct surveillance of you know which workers support the unions even though technically you're not allowed to do that and that's Mm -hmm. a violation of you know uh labor law but one of the organizers connor spence pointed out they said uh, that quote they are using these meetings as a way to gather data by monitoring how workers speak out and what kind of questions they ask however i think we've been so disruptive in these meetings that they haven't gotten much useful data (laughs) (laughs) maybe uh I know that again, not to just always relate to to the my experience, but uh, really, we had to lie. Like we, when yeah. we were in those meetings, we had to straight up lie. I acted like an absolute dunce in those meetings. <laughs> <laughs> Strong move, honestly. Acting yeah. stupid on purpose is incredibly powerful energy if you have the conviction to pull it off. Uh, speaking of having the conviction to pull things off, though, let's Fuck talk yeah. about 14,000 Kroger workers in Houston who voted overwhelmingly to authorize a strike. We're talking about over 97% yes vote authorization for a strike. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, you pointed this out when I first posted this in the Discord, Lena, but like one of the crazy things I think about the story is not only the fantastic level of mobilization of these folks in for in support of the strike and like the the huge basically nearly unanimous vote to authorize it but just the fact that there are 14,000 Kroger workers just in the Houston area yeah like i know Houston is you know it's a giant city it's i, I believe now the fourth largest city in the country but like that is a ton of workers at one chain in one city yeah, I, just to, to put it in perspective, the deer strike, which was the largest strike in the United States at the time, was 10,000 workers amongst all of the deer plants. Right. Yeah. And this is just Houston 
Kroger's. Kroger, I mean, shit, how yeah. many people does Kroger fucking employ? I mean, I live, you know, I think they're bigger in the South than they are yeah. in the North. So to me, it's like, oh, if I see a Kroger, I'm like, oh shit, a Kroger. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I, I think that's where a lot of people buy most of their um, uh, groceries and shit. Yeah, almost certainly. Yeah, so, and these folks are all represented by UFCW Local 455. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the, the the key things about this strike vote is that it's been specifically timed to authorize the union to go on strike as early as this week, which yes. is, of course, a rather big week for grocery stores. Yep. <laughs> because, you know, a lot of places like grocery stores will do like the, their biggest business of the year this week with folks going to buy stuff for Thanksgiving. And so... It is very good to see the union, you know, understanding how to use that sort of leverage. But and just for some background for where the the folks are coming from here, Kroger has has been bargaining with UFCW since last April when their contract expired. Um, They've you know they've done the same sort of things we've seen at a lot of these other places. They gave a temporary bonus Mm -hmm. of like. I think it was $2 an hour temporary like hazard pay increase, but that ended long ago. Um, and so they've been negotiating back and forth, but Kroger has, has not presented the union with a, a offer that, that they could accept. And they issued their last best and final offer back in August. And the terms were so bad. It prompted workers to protest at multiple uh, stores around the city. Yeah, I, I the the actual like offer in the contract for wage increases was between ninety cents and two dollars and forty five cents. Hold on, over three years. It means wow. that in in a union contract, they're going to give you thirty cents a year, which almost certainly does not meet inflation, does not meet any standard of wage decency, especially probably because these people are play are paid not very well. I mean, we know that grocery store workers are often, you know, paid similar to other sorts of of kind of precarious labor or or like just, you know, what do you call it? Um like devalued labor yeah. and uh maxing out at 250 over 3 years, it's not even a dollar. Yeah, like these folks uh, on average Kroger has been claiming that they're paying workers $15 an hour. Uh, from what I was reading, it's really more like 13 to 14, and then they're like, oh, well, over the next period. But even <laughs> even if they were paid $15 an hour, that $0.30 cents a year raise is a 2% raise. So it's like, I, yeah, I get it. Like, grocery store workers are, are starting from a, a spot where, obviously, are, are one of the more underpaid sectors of the economy to, to begin with. But even at those low pay rates, like 90 cents obviously is, is, is insulting on its face. Like even if, even if it was 90 cents a year, Mm -hmm. but like when you actually run the numbers, like, yeah, even if you were just like, we just want this to keep up with inflation that is nowhere close. Cause like inflation is never less than 2% a year. And obviously right now when we're at what, like 6% or something, it's, 
as we talked about before, these are pay cuts. These are not raises. Right. Well, and then the language that the company uses to talk about this <sighs> yeah. is like really, truly disgusting because you have Clara Campbell, uh, who is corporate affairs manager for Kroger. And she says, unfortunately, the union has not given their members an opportunity to vote on those investments. Investments meaning <laughs> those despicably <laughs> tiny pay, yeah. quote, pay raises. Uh, and she says, instead, they are asking them to authorize a strike and potentially disrupt their lives. It's like, well, hold on. They they <laughs> authorized it at 97%. So I don't think the union is asking them to do anything. I think the union <laughs> is is offering up the exact opportunity that the members of the union are very hungry for right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the investments like that. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> what a what a fucking line. Truly revolting. And then speaking of truly revolting, as they're voting on the strike authorization, Kroger has the fucking gall to call the police on them. And then when the police showed up, very knowledgeable union members, this is the cool part of the story, ex- like explained to the police exactly why everything was going, how it was, you know, contractually, legally, whatever supposed to go. And the police left. Wow. <laughs> Which yeah, is cool. That's surprising. The, the police actually listening. That's a rare one. I mean, that's yeah. the thing, though. If you're showing solidarity and you're all coming up and saying it together and agreeing as a group that you're allowed to do this, that's a lot more powerful than like one guy trying to confront the police and throw the book at them, which is not going to work. Right. Right. Definitely. Yeah, like when I was reading the stories about this, they were talking about like the the cops showing up at these places and being confronted by the workers being like, what? What do you mean we're not allowed to be here? We're like, we're the work. We we work at these facilities. We're just doing our contractually allowed strike vote. Mm -hmm. And so the cops like called the D.A., (laughs) <laughs> of the Houston <laughs> County to be like, Hey, you gotta, you know, give us a uh, like legal documentation to evict these people, like make these people leave. And the DA was like, well, technically they are actually within their rights to do that. <laughs> yeah. So, so the cops just fucked off. Good. Good. I mean, knowing your rights is important and defending them as a group is yeah. equally important. Yeah, speaking yeah. of telling someone to fuck off as a group That's how right. about the the Hoffa legacy. Yeah, no kidding. This was definitely uh one of the more So obviously for I think most people, you know, who are paying attention to anything going on knows that there was some shitty news last week. There was a lot mm-hmm. of bad stories, a lot of bad times. This was not one of them. This was definitely one of the better uh, pieces of labor news that we are going to get a chance to report on this year because we have talked previously before about the Teamsters election and how the this year looked like it was going to be the the best chance in a long time for the reform slate backed by the the TDU the Teamsters for Democratic Union to actually Mm -hmm. get in power and and get the the Hoffa slate which you know obviously under Jimmy Hoffa original flavor uh, ran the Teamsters back, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And then under his son has run the union for the past, I believe, 25 years. And under that time, as we've talked about before, it's just been concessionary contract after concessionary contract. And well, it looks like that's backfired for the uh, the Hoffa slate because the election is over and it was a resounding, a overwhelming victory for the TDU-backed Teamsters United slate uh, led by uh, Sean O'Brien and uh, Zuckerman, who was uh, you know one of the folks that was previously opposing Hoffa in the last election. They won by a two 
to one margin. Woo! That's what I'm talking about. That's what we call a decisive election. Uh, and I mean, it's no wonder that they voted for this guy because he says that when UPS negotiations come up in 2023, the union is going to fight to abolish the second tier of drivers, raise their starting pay of part-timers from 14 to $20 an hour, crack down on subcontracting and Uber-like deliveries by personal vehicle drivers, and he is committed to... He has pledged to strike at UPS if necessary, which is like, that's a fairly radical platform for as large of a union uh, as the Teamsters to be rallying behind. That's like really, really fucking impressive uh, shit. Yeah, like obviously, you know, the proof will be in the pudding. We'll we'll see how this goes. Right, but right, the right. entirety of the campaign of the United Slate was based on like, no more of these concessionary contracts. We like we have a strike fund. We need to fucking use it. And and it's this is one really of the first great. times I've seen a strike fund like in a monetary value. They claim that the strike funds got three hundred million dollars in it, and it has been barely touched in yeah. decades. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, there was. <laughs> I believe I, I don't have the quote in here, but just because. But when I was reading through all of the the articles summing up the election campaign, when they had like one of the debates between O'Brien and and Verma, who was the Hoffa backed uh, Teamster Power, uh, basically the conservative slate, <laughs> like they in, in during one of those dis- like debates, O'Brien fired at Verma that like look, you have been in power, like not in necessarily in charge, but in the upper levels of the union leadership mm-hmm. for decades now and have only struck six times. So uh, I think we actually need somebody who's willing to really use the resources of the rank and file in there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and, well, and, and with the strike fund, they mentioned that it's like, yeah, like a, they have a $300 million strike fund. And while it's great that the Teamsters have a big strike fund, Part of the reason it's so large is because the Teamsters uh, under the the Hoffa you know leadership has been so unwilling to strike and has been so dedicated to these shitty reformist contracts, especially the UPS contract, which was uh, forced through undemocratically against the will of the union uh, with the old uh, you know two thirds required to reject a contract rule, which has since been ditched at the most right. recent Teamsters convention. I mean, you so. have it from one of the drivers here, uh, Eugene Braswell, uh, who is also a TDU steering committee member, who said, UPS, they've had a free ride for the past 23 years. They didn't have to take us seriously when we came to the negotiations table. That's going to change. And uh, I mean, it's no wonder that you're able to mobilize the union to vote for you when you <laughs> your platform is like, hey, we should actually apply pressure to our employer and use the resources that we have. I mean, a $300 million strike fund isn't just big. It's kind of bloated, really. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, one of the things that was also just interesting about just learning about, you know, some of the background for these folks from, from the, their history within Teamsters, you know, Mm -hmm. leadership at at different levels. Cause O'Brien was the leader of new England joint council 10 from the Teamsters and actually used to be a pretty vocal opponent of the TDU. And at one point gotten a big like fracas between uh, his local in Boston and, and some folk, some like TDU backed folks down here in Rhode Island. But after the UPS negotiations, which he had been put in charge of by the Hoffa slate, where he basically said, look, we got to have, you know, 
the actual rank and file represented on this committee. And so he wanted to bring Zuckerman in because uh, he represented, you know, the, the more reform minded, really the, what most of the rank and file were looking for. Mm-hmm. Hoffa booted him off of the, uh, the negotiating team. And, and that seemed to have been the catalyst, which convinced O'Brien that the, you know, the entrenched leadership was not really what, you know, in the best interests of, of the Teamsters members and, and pushed him to more to understand that like the, the TDU back, you know, reform folks were really what the rank and file want and are pushing what the, the, the actual membership need out of a union. Interesting. So this O'Brien, he's kind of a punished Bernie Sanders figure <laughs> within the union movement. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> but he also had, uh, I, I just, I really liked his this this line from his acceptance speech where after the, you know, after the election results came in and Verma conceded and it was it was pretty obvious like relatively early on as the results rolled in that this was not going to be close where he said, you know, addressing the the membership as a whole, quote you chose a team dedicated to rebuilding the Teamsters as a militant fighting union from bottom to top. You are the reason we achieve victory. Thank you. Employers and politicians are on notice. The Teamsters Union is back. Fighting for workers is a full contact sport. We call on every Teamster to put your helmet on and buckle your chin straps because the fight begins today. That's badass. Full contact sport. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like he emphasized in multiple of the interviews that I was going through that he's like, look, we've made it a priority as we should have, you know, as the teamsters to, to unionize Amazon. And he also, that was one of the other things he pointed out. He's like, we should have been trying to do this 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so, but if we're going to actually have any ability to any like clout with these folks, any reason for them to trust us when we come into their workspace, we got to win the UPS contract negotiations in 2023. And we can't be, you know, accepting these bullshit contracts. We have to go in there, fight for the best contract we can get so that when we go into Amazon, we can say, look at this. This is what a union can get you. And this is why you need to be part of the Teamsters. And that's like, that's, that's really the whole game right there. Right. So definitely this is a, Good news, and, and now very excited to see the developments over the next year as we build up towards that that 2023 UPS contract negotiation, which could be, if, if they do end up going on strike, that'll be the biggest strike in uh, re- memory <laughs> in yeah. the U.S. Yeah. Like, that's hundreds of thousands of, of people. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, in the fashion of this episode today, we're going to oscillate between good stories and bad stories. <laughs> yes. Ah, and yes. Returning to everybody's, uh, well, maybe even one of the most iconic industries of terrible working conditions and hazardous uh, workplace-related injuries, meat processing. Yeah. In relation to our favorite organization, Friends of the Show, OSHA. Oh yeah. boy. Everyone's favorite uh safety watchdog organization. I don't even know what they're supposed they to do. They do just sit back and watch. That's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, making yeah, making the term watchdog as literal as possible. Um like cuz so we've talked a, a, a few times on the show about basically the complete abandonment of of meat processing workers during the the beginning stages of the pandemic in this country. Uh you know, with the basically the government allowing them to do illegal speed ups beyond what was normal, basically doing nothing about COVID protections as thousands of workers got sick and hundreds died. And so this is specifically getting into one of the bigger culprits in that. Cause we talked about some of the chicken processing plants before, but here we're talking about Smithfield who are 
you know, one of the biggest pork processing companies in the U.S. And this is specifically talking about their Sioux Falls, South Dakota plant, where nearly half their workforce last year, uh, 1,600 workers at that plant got COVID. And so OSHA, you know, as that defender of workers' rights and, mm-hmm. and, and safety came in and they did a big investigation they, and they issued their report last month accusing executives across the meatpacking industry of prioritizing profits over worker safety, which is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at least four workers died at that specific plant, including uh, Craig Franken and uh, Augustin Rodriguez, who both died in April of last year. And so now that they've put out this report, correctly assessing that the the companies you know they they decided to abandon worker safety in order to make more money they are going to come down hard on this company and they have uh settled with smithfield out of court allowing it to admit no wrongdoing and pay a fine of thirteen thousand dollars thirteen thousand dollars per four deaths and no accountability for additional sickness from the six from the sixteen thousand covid cases or whatever i mean people wonder in this country why employers don't do anything to keep you safe or prevent you from getting injured or sick and it's because if they fuck up they can pay you seven workers wages for two weeks and (laughs) that's they're fine it's like there's no risk to them there's no osha doesn't fucking do anything yeah so even if you left just the infections that didn't result in deaths aside, mm-hmm. like this is a fine of like $3,300 per dead employee. Mm-hmm. Like that's nothing. The, the, the idea that that would have a deterrent effect on a mate on not even that wouldn't have a deterrent effect on a tiny business with with 10 employees much less smithfield which is a gigantic corporation right like it is an insult to like not only to the the you know the memory of those workers who died but to the intelligence of workers everywhere that that this would be any sort of of a punishment or deterrence of any kind it's like i you know i'd almost rather have them say we don't actually have any legal authority we can't do anything because it would be more honest than than claiming that this is actually any sort of punishment Right. And then you, we've immediately heard from the UFCW, which re, uh, represents workers at that plant who have been rightfully outraged. They criticized the new federal agreement for weakening the citation for worker safety violations, a clear failure to recognize the company's safety issues and allowing the company to police itself on worker safety by appointing its own team of experts to evaluate plant safety and preparedness, even as COVID-19 cases proliferate. So this is just another situation where it's kind of like we investigated ourselves and found no evidence of wrongdoing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's that nobody should be allowed to do that. If you have any system where the person in charge of auditing your behavior is you, (laughs) it's not a good system. Right. Right. Like, and they even, cause they, the, one of the things the UFCW has been really hammering on and to their credit, like, is that, the other part of the settlement besides the stupid bullshit, nothing fine is that the company agreed to assemble a team of company and third party experts to develop an infectious disease preparedness plan that they will implement at all of their facilities nationwide, which first of all, we're like two years into the pandemic. 
Yeah. It's not a, you don't need a preparedness plan. You need a response plan. And second off the, as the UFCW has pointed out, and as you were alluding to, like it's a team of people selected by Smithfield. Like even when right. they're like, Oh, we're bringing in third party experts, but who gets to pick who those experts are? It's Smithfield. The We've union doesn't have any Littler Mendelssohn to yeah. determine yeah. whether or not. Oh yeah. I love working for a consulting company that gets hired to come in and do safety audits. Uh, and my boss is telling me like, okay, you can't actually bring any of this stuff up at the meeting because, uh, we want to get hired by this client again. And it's like, okay, uh, I guess, uh, workers will die then, you know, like that's, yeah, like, that's the situation. It's going to be like, three managers from Smithfield mm-hmm. and three people from like Pete Buttigieg from McKinsey mm-hmm. coming in, telling them how they can like put up signs that assuage workers fears without actually spending any money to actually protect anyone. Like yeah, it's I, a joke. I, I love letting companies uh, do their own safety inspections, which is just one Pinkerton coming into the shop floor and yeah. putting up a hang in their poster. <laughs> leaving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, And so there's a quote in here from local 304A head BJ Motley, which that's the local that represents the, the workers at this plant, who said, mm-hmm. quote, our leaders have a responsibility to protect America's frontline workers who've been bravely putting their lives at risk to keep our country's food supply chain strong throughout this crisis. This deal is nothing more than a slap on the wrist for Smithfield and a deeply troubling betrayal of the men and women who've already sacrificed so much in this pandemic. In the beginning of the pandemic, we were trying to force them to make attempts to put in safety measures for the employees, which they ignored for weeks. It took until we had about 30 to 60 cases when they started to take it seriously. And and then he was, you know, asked directly by the interviewer, like, well, oh, well, do you think the company's at fault for this? And he responded, quote, yes, the company was at fault, end quote. It's like, that's, that's, because that's the thing. It's like, you have all these you bring in all the corporate lawyers and the PR people and they get all mealy mouthed about it. Like in one of the things I was reading, they were blaming this on the fucking CDC and they were like, well, the CDC's guidance was very confusing at the beginning uh. of the pandemic, which is true and is why you should listen to the WHO and not the CDC. But that's irrelevant when, as the, the union pointed out, the union itself had been like, Hey, um, we would like to have safety things. Here's what we think you should do. Right. And they just completely ignored them, completely shut that down. Like all of this is on the company. None of this, like as, as shitty as the CDC is, as overly politicized as it is, and as bad of a job as they've done at handling the pandemic, none of that absolves the company of their responsibility for this. Absolutely yeah. not. No. And I mean, it's just further evidence how on the ball unions in general, but also specifically this union was with, you know, proposing safety measures that like if workers were simply in charge of their own workplaces, they would be exponentially safer, whether there's a fucking pandemic or not. Uh, And then you have OSHA who has the fucking gall to release a statement regarding the settlement that says the resolution of this case holds Smithfield accountable for the hazards it created at its Sioux Falls plant in this particular case. The settlement also advances worker safety at all Smithfield plants regarding the current COVID-19 pandemic, as well as with future pandemics that may occur. So this is literally just like, my job here is done, but you didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. Like, like that, that entire statement is a lie. Yes. Like not, that, none of that is true. It holds no one accountable. It does not advance worker safety. It will do nothing to prevent this in the future. Mm-hmm. Like, in, in that's the thing that's so frustrating. It's like, because not only is this inadequate, 
OSHA is in effect by doing this running cover for yes. the corporation mm-hmm. because if they did nothing, <laughs> then the company would still be relatively exposed to criticism. Although, you know, with our media, we, I certainly wouldn't expect them to do any sort of a job holding them accountable. But with this ruling, the company can now point to it and say, look, see, you know, we think that OSHA was, you know, you know overly harsh. We didn't do any, but we're, we're willing to work with them. We were, you know, we're willing to do what is necessary to take care of our employees. And they can just point to this bullshit statement from OSHA. And, and that for most folks who don't have, you know, the time or, or ability to look into this stuff further, be like, well, you know, OSHA did their job. And, and, and so it seems like they're going to get this fixed. And, well, and if this is the job that OSHA is doing, then they like what the fuck is the point like if this really is the point of osha then they're not doing anything well that's exactly why it is the point of osha because who administrates osha yeah (laughs) yeah no i know it's (laughs) it's one of those things like this is a perfect example of like the way that bourgeois government will use these supposedly pro-worker reforms like the establishment of OSHA, and then over time, we'll hollow them out and roll them back and ultimately turn them against the workers. And yeah. so it's it's yet another demonstration that it's like the only thing that's going to actually, you know, be able to hold these companies accountable, actually be able to enforce protection of workers is strong, militant union action. Like, it, like we can only protect ourselves. The the bourgeois state's never going to do it for us. But where are we going to find examples of, of <laughs> such strong unions? That's like, right. Yeah. I, I, I just don't know. Where where in the world could we see like great successes come out of large militant movements? Hmm, maybe the most populous country in the world? <laughs> <laughs> this was, was the other big story this week. This was... I mean, this is a, this is incredible piece of news. Like this Mm -hmm. is my, I mean, uh, this is one of the most inspiring stories that I've seen in in a long time. It's, it's continued demonstration that, uh, when, you know, workers stand up for themselves, they can do pretty much anything. And, And what we're talking about is the fact that the Indian farmers movement has won. They have defeated the BJP and the neoliberal and fascist forces within India's attempts to deregulate and destroy Indian agriculture because this week uh, Modi was forced to announce the repeal of the three farm laws that the Indian farmers movement has been protesting for the past year. I know it's so fucking good. We've been reporting this like since the, it was first reported like, Oh, biggest general strike in forever or whatever. And, uh, how, you know, we did that deep dive on how the, there was a farmer's movement first and then there was the general strike and now, and then the farmer's protest, which was the continuation of the general strike extending from what the, a lot of these articles say for over, a year but that really stems just back from the general strike obvious it's been really closer to two years uh a little under two years that this whole process has been going on to actually get these farm laws repealed and they finally gave in now they the the Modi government has said that they're going to do it during the next parliamentary session. They did this in the in the middle, hoping that, oh, well, maybe we can just say it now and the movement will go away and then we'll repeal one farm bill or some, something like that. But the, a lot of the, the people out there are saying, oh, this is really great. This is a great victory and we'll be here until you actually do it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he even when Modi made the statement, you can hear in his choice of words that he kind of like 
really doesn't want to eat his crow on this. You yeah. know what I mean? Like today I beg the forgiveness of my countrymen and say with a pure heart and honest mind that perhaps there was some shortcoming. <laughs> Shut up, dude. You lost. <laughs> Fuck you. That sucks. Like, like <laughs> just cannot admit defeat. <laughs> like, cause that's the other, it's the statement is just so funny because it's, you can just, as you're saying, like you can, you can hear the anger and the like frustration <laughs> at being forced to do this in his choice of language. Cause he, he tried to play it off as well. People just didn't understand it. Or he said, quote, we could not convince some of our farmer brothers of the intentions of these laws. It's like, <laughs> Yo, Come on, we're, man. We're not yeah, brothers. Well, I mean, I'm he's, sorry. He's not lying there. They couldn't convince them about the intentions of the law. That's but you know, convincing them about the intentions meant lying to them because <laughs> right. everyone could tell from even a, 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 a casual glance at the content of these laws that they were specifically designed to disrupt life for farmers and localize, you know, centralized economic power, uh, agricultural economic power in the hands of the BJP and the far right and big business and that whole fucking cohort of the Indian ruling class. Yeah. Like, and he, so like Modi and the BJP are trying to speak in this as like a well we you know we were just trying to do what's best we were just trying to help but look the people have spoken and, and we are listening to them and we are giving you this gift by repealing it's like no motherfuckers you held out for a year on this you were forced to repeal these because you got beat like that it's simple as that like you lost like just accept right. that like yeah. Well, and and I mean they did they did lose, but you know, there are also we need to to take account for some of the actual sacrifices that these farmers yeah. have done in order to reach this goal because really with having the largest protest movement in like, you know, the any sort of uh well, I guess uh, the largest strike of any of any movement in like as far as I know like recently uh they they saw around 700 people who died while out protesting um yeah. and we had a little bit of information about like you know who some of these people are a lot of these people are people who either don't have any land or on average a lot uh, a lot of these people basically had under three acres worth of land these are people who mm -hmm. are out there fighting for like what little they have and it really shows the the class character of the movement itself and and like it was really difficult uh to make sure that the nutrition levels were really high in some of these camps these are these were set up in order to like strengthen the movement and to allow people to stay and for setting up enough infrastructure for this many people in in the amount of time that they've done and to make it last for over a year uh there were some times when like it was very cold in the winter and very hot in the summer and they mm -hmm. might not have had all the resources they need and some people's health did wane and and we saw 700 deaths um the survey that uh some of this information that i'm pulling based on is actually just uh is based on a 460 of those deaths so not not all of them but uh it says uh here that about 80 percent of the farmers who died were from the punjab region and and that uh that was where we saw like the largest mobilization of of workers and you know it's just and and I guess I think another th really important fact here is like a lot of the people who were out there who died were like 
57 we're at an average age of 57 which means that that for one it was people who who might have some health struggles on their own but then also that these are not like these are people who have been doing this their whole life like these are farmers who are lifetime like farmers and subsistence farmers and people who rely on the on the fixed price the fixed buying price from the government and and they're not they're not naive people. These are people who have been organizing their entire lives and, and, and really send, send our solidarity out to them and their families because there are some people who are struggling now with, from, from some of these losses, but they did, they did get their win. You, know? you, can, you can feel the conviction. Something. You can feel the conviction in um, the quote from this guy, Ramandeep Singh uh, Man, Man. I'm sorry if I'm saying it incorrectly. Uh, he's a farmer leader and an activist, and he said that he was ecstatic after hearing the news, like you've conquered Mount Everest, which I think is like such a great way of describing it because conquering Mount Everest is like, it's not just a great achievement, but it's also like widely understood to be an incredibly difficult and sometimes like deadly struggle to get to the top of that mountain. And I think it shows like the way that like as difficult and as harrowing and as, as much grief and pain as it took to get to this point, um, that has only served to like really make this a personal matter for the farmers and the workers and make them feel a personal investment and a personal sense of like victory and stake in this. And that's great for uh, mobilizing people further in any other, you know, uh, social movements or, or labor movements that might crop up here in India, like to struggle for so long and so hard in the face of so much and then to win is that's incredible. Like that's what, a, what an incredible thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so, like you said uh, uh, earlier, like obviously, the, I, I like the fact that the uh, some—I'm not going to pronounce this right, and I apologize—the Samyukitan Morcha, which is one of the you know uh, farmers' unions that have been leading the protest, <laughs> said in response to the announcement, "If it happens, it will be a historic victory," <laughs> because, as you said, and, the, and they're, they're basically like, "Yeah, great, wonderful," and we'll be here until they make it official into right. law, and. And, but, and they've also pointed out that like, while this is, you know, an, it's an incredible victory, it's the first part. And they're now they're pushing on the set big second part of, of this that they've been demanding the whole time, which is getting the establishment of minimum support price for all of the most commonly cultivated crops that these farmers are working on, getting that codified into law so that, that like what Modi can't just, you know, roll back these support prices or de- try and deregulate these down the road after, you know, even if they, when they, when they do re- repeal these laws, trying to get it set into stone that, you know, <laughs> that you have to have this level of state support in order to just maintain your agriculture system. It's like agriculture because it's dependent on whether it's dependent on environmental factors. It's like you're going to have good harvest some years, you're going to have bad harvest some years. So you need that level of stability that's put in by these minimum support prices. And so now with this victory, the the next stage that they're fighting for is the establishment of those MSPs into state law. And there's one, like, one other aspect of this that I really want, like I think our listeners should really pay attention to. Be, and, and I've, you know, been trying to talk about this with just folks in general, like, obviously this is an inspiring victory for all the reasons that we've talked about. It's been the biggest single mobilization of, of workers in a single movement in the world. And it's an incredible demonstration of what United workers can do. 
But I also want to point out, because this is kind of related to some stuff that's been happening in the U.S. over the last week or so, that while they, they faced, you know, the folks dying from, from you know, issues related to having to be out there in these camps for a year, having to deal with, you know, poverty conditions because of, of, of the deregulation of industry and, and agriculture, they also faced direct fascist violence like we talked about um a, a few weeks ago on that incident where there was that ramming attack by bjp members against the farmers protest and like yet despite this incredibly vicious campaign of of constant attack by the bjp and their various you know fascist allies they you know there many workers many farmers lost their lives in in these horrible attacks and yet the united power of this many people was still able to defeat these fascist movements. And, and that's, I think something that we need to learn from because it's like in the U S like, you know, (laughs) things are getting more fascist by the day. And, and these are the movements like things like this are what we can learn from on the, we can take tactics, we can take strategies and just inspiration because these folks have been facing similar types of fascist violence and through this level of organization through these farmers groups through the various communist parties various left groups going out among the people to not just the farmers but also workers also even some you know small businesses and all these people to to, to just point out it's like our interests are the same <laughs> uh, uh, united against the forces of fascism and through that union, through the, the mass of people coming together, like millions strong, even with the level of violence that the fascists were willing to dish out, they still were not able to defeat these movements. And, and that's the sort of thing that we, we need to draw on when we build our movements here to resist the same sorts of fascist violence here, you know, in the heart of the empire. It'll be different, it'll be different tactics because it's different material conditions, but this is a great place to learn from. And, and so I highly encourage folks to, to try and, you know, learn as much as possible about it. I've, I've posted a few like deep dive things in the, the discord about it. I, I definitely re- recommend folks check it out because like these, these folks are, are on the bleeding edge of class struggle right now. And so we, there's a, there's a ton we can take from that and incorporate into our organizing here. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and like, I just want to want to end it with this quote from, uh, from, Jagdeep Singh, whose father, uh, Nakshatra Singh, who uh, was 54, was among the protesters killed in Uttar Pradesh last month. And he said that the repeal served as a testament to those that had died in the difficult conditions and said, quote, this is a win for all those farmers who laid down their lives to save hundreds of thousands of poor farmers of this country from corporate greed. They must be smiling from wherever they are. Wow. Well, heading back to the United States and uh, you know, a place that that John and I know fairly well. That's right. Uh, is uh, Pittsburgh, where UPMC workers had gone on strike this past Thursday for a one-day strike, uh, demanding a twenty-dollar starting wage, safe staffing, affordable health care, 
uh, without medical debt because that's oh my gosh the the number of stories that you hear out of the UPMC crew that these are people who are healthcare workers who often end up in extreme amounts of medical debt that they cannot pay on the wages that they're provided and right. that's I I remember going to some some protests early in my days in Pittsburgh and hearing stories of some of the workers who are out there talking and just just being like some this woman who had cancer and how she literally cannot afford to even continue her treatment and just stuff like that it's not and and that and that is not necessarily uncommon for these healthcare workers and i'm guessing not uncommon for many healthcare workers around the united states but one of the ways in which upmc has actually gotten around like having any accountability is by basically having zero employees uh yeah by by contracting literally everything out and and just uh just blaming everything on subcontractors and not really taking any responsibility for the people who are actually out there doing the work for them yeah that was something that i like because i i was was not very familiar with upmc going into this and so reading about it that was one of the more wild parts about this was finding out that upmc who are Pennsylvania's largest private employer <laughs> have been trying to use loopholes. Like, as you were saying, they're trying to claim that all of their employees, all 92,000 of them are actually subcontractors, <laughs> which is just like an absolutely wild assertion to, to try and get through. And yet so far the government's gone along with it, <laughs> which is, you know, absolutely insane because uh, I, I, and i know like in a lot of places around the country you've either got the largest employer is either walmart or it's a healthcare firm like i know around here like yale new haven health is huge in in southern new england they're one of the biggest employers and, and it's, it sounds like a similar position to upmc mm-hmm. and so yeah the strikers here uh, on thursday you know included transporters, dietary workers, housekeepers, nurses, patient care technicians, medical assistants, pharmacy techs, surgical techs, valets, therapists, healthcare coordinators, and administrative assistants. Mm-hmm. And like the fact that you have all of these different professions working at the biggest single employer in the state, well, private employer, and based on a study conducted of those workers that 64% of them, a large majority, have trouble paying their rent, mortgage, or utility bills. And that, as you were talking about, over 60% have outstanding medical debt or have struggled to buy food or medicine. Like, that, you're the biggest employer in the state, mm-hmm. and you can't pay your workers enough to buy fucking food yeah or medicine no. i mean i i worked at starbucks in pittsburgh and i would say half of the people that i worked with who went to go get a better job became a nurse or a technician or a driver or something working for upmc and the ones that i kept up with after they didn't work with me at starbucks anymore 
all were like unimpressed by the quality of life improvement they, they got because it was basically the same as working at fucking Starbucks. And yeah. like, then I was a valet outside of UPMC Mercy. And let me tell you, the people working at that hospital were some of the most miserable hospital staff I've ever seen in my entire life. And like, shocker, when a healthcare company is like the biggest private employer in an entire fucking state, there's no one holding them accountable to treat their employees yeah. with any fucking dignity or respect. Right. Yeah. I mean, we have a quote from a, from a patient care technician here at the UPMC Presbyterian, uh, CJ Patterson, who says $20 an hour would be life changing for me. Yeah. And, and they pointed out that they make less than $18 an hour. After working there, which that would be an in, that's not a sufficient starting wage. No, most places, especially in a city, you know, like Pittsburgh. Um, but but they're making that after 22 years. Exactly. Like (sighs) that's insane to be working at a place for that long. And they're only, they've only brought you up to $18 an hour for somebody who is, you know, taking care of folks at a hospital. Like, that's insane. Yeah, it's your job to save lives daily. Anyway, here's uh, not enough money to be able to afford the service you provide. Uh, thanks. Like, and I know that this is not even a, a, a good basic minimum metric, but that's not even a dollar a year for their expertise. No. Like this is like 22 years of expertise. And that's maybe that's not even including the kind of practice that went in in order to even get that job. Yeah, it's hard to become a nurse, a doctor, a technician, you know, a lot of these jobs do require a high degree of specialization. And then to get paid less than $20 an hour for that is just, it's a slap in the fucking face. These people might not just have medical debt. They might have fucking, you know, student debt. They might have had to take time off to get their certifications or whatever. Like people have, they have to put a lot of their lives aside to work for any job uh, not to mention a job in the healthcare field, which is notorious for keeping people at work all the fucking time. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing is like, I mean, because they continued here where they said, with a living wage, I could finally get out of debt for the medical care I've needed along the way. I could send my granddaughter to a great school and save up for her college. I could help my grandson, who's a football player, afford the gear and programs he needs to succeed. I'm going on strike for them. And so there's a whole lot. <laughs> In that quote, like one, like the fact that this person has been, obviously everyone deserves a minimum wage, but the fact they've been working there for that long and have grandkids that they're taking care of and are still only being paid $18 an hour is a fucking travesty. Right. But also like getting a bit, this is a bit outside of this specific issue. Every single one of those things that is weighing on this person should be free. Right. Medical care that they are now having to pay debt on. The fact that that's not free is an attack on, you know, every person in this country. Right. The education, the fact that that's not free is an attack on every working person in this country. Mm-hmm. And being able to support your kids just to be able to play sports, like what the fuck? Why are any of those things having to be paid for by workers? Like all of those things are things that like benefit society broadly that benefit everyone if they're paid for by the collective by the state and the fact that we throw this onto everyone individually is just such an indictment you know of how 
anti, really anti-human, you know, the U.S. capitalism is. And so while it's absolutely, we should, you know, you know we can aim our ire at UPMC on this and they are ultimately the ones who should be paying this person and owe them an enormous amount of, you know, money for the, the service that this person's put in for 22 years. But like, that wouldn't be enough. $18 wouldn't be enough if all those things were free as they should be. Right. And so like, this this stuff is just it's so frustrating to see because like that eighteen dollars an hour like I know over here on the east coast like cost of living is higher and so wages tend to be you know higher than in in, in some other parts of the country that but that's like you can get more than that working at a fucking Amazon warehouse here and as we talked about Amazon sucks eighteen dollars an hour in Pittsburgh is uh, from my own personal knowledge what a shift supervisor at Aldi makes. So, yeah. you know, no disrespect to Aldi workers whatsoever, sure. but we need to pay nurses more than that and also get the Aldi workers a raise. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, and then you have Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, uh, famously a man of contrasts. I don't know how else to describe <laughs> him. He's like kind of a, he, he's kind of a Bernie core, uh, yeah. Democrat, but he also has like a, a few issues that he's extremely bad on. He also famously held up a random black jogger in his neighborhood with a shotgun. Uh, I think very early in the morning and that is a dangerous area, but that's also just a racist thing to do. Um, and, uh, he came out to the rally and he said they deserve a good wage. They deserve to be unionized and they deserve to be treated with the respect that is commensurate with the contribution that they make to UPMC's bottom line. And I appreciate that, John, but you're the Lieutenant governor. Why don't you go Lieutenant (laughs) govern it into existence? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. It's like, I'm always reluctant to put in politicians statements when I, when I put the notes together. Sure. But that's particularly why I wanted to put this one in here is because it's like this guy, as you said, like, you know, even, even as somebody not from the area, I've seen, you know, posts and stuff about Mm -hmm. him talking about supporting workers and stuff. And it's like, yeah, that's great. I'm glad that you're vocally supporting workers, but like you're in a position of power. Like do something about you're, it. You're not stuff is talking about it. You're not the like surprisingly nationally famous mayor of Braddock anymore who like went to Harvard <laughs> yeah. and still wears cargo shorts. You are the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania and you need to march your little cargo. Sh- you're actually quite large cargo shorts. He's a huge man. <laughs> you're He's very big. big. Car- <laughs> you got to march your yeah. enormous cargo shorts down to Harrisburg and fucking do something like whip the legislative body into action or issue i don't even know what does a lieutenant governor do walk around decreeing shit (laughs) seems pretty fucking useless (laughs) yeah it depends on the state but that was another thing though like just like as we close this out like to because this is a one-day strike by workers who still don't have official union representation after a decade-long campaign by the sciu which Props to the SEIU for sticking for sticking with this for a decade. I right. mean, the workers deserve it, but like that, I think is such an illustration of the like ferocity of UPMC's union busting campaigns yes. and tactics. Because like they they point on this that like they've been trying to organize workers at UPMC since 2012, and in that time, they've fired filed 21 unfair labor practice complaints with the NLRB, including, uh, you know, against 
uh, all our favorite classics, unlawful intimidation, threats, the removal of union literature from break rooms at multiple UPMC facilities. And so like all props to SEIU on this, keep it up. Like, but like, it's wild that like the company has been able to keep like hold off a union drive this long and really shows you how the structures of our, you know, political system are so set up to benefit mega companies like UPMC. Yeah. And, and, and in response to all this for UPMC has said, Oh, though they're giving us the, we see you, we hear you bullshit. And they've responded to the protest by giving a one-time offer of a $500 bonus. Oh, and an eventual raise for the lowest paid workers to fifteen seventy five an hour. God damn! Which one UPMC employee absolutely correctly called quote a slap in the face to all workers, and this comes as UPMC made a and I will point it out declared profit because I find it very difficult to believe their profit was not quite a bit higher than this, but right. a declared profit of over one billion dollars last year. Lies, and and it's just a, such an example of how like this is a outcropping of liberalism and you can't solve this by being a cool liberal, you know, even nominally pro union town in a blue state because Pittsburgh is all of those things. It has a long union history. It has a democratic mayor. It has a democratic governor. And yet every single one of these politicians with the exception of some token statements from the Lieutenant governor have basically had UPMC's back at every fucking turn because they're kind of the too big to fail industry of Western Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't, and I know that we do have to give credit to SEIU, but I do think that they are one of those unions that's in line for one of those Teamsters style, uh, you know, yeah, reforms, sure. because I think that they, they could do a little bit more rank and file organizing and maybe well, they'd have a little bit more credibility. I mean, the election should give a lot of people an idea of where Pittsburgh stands. Uh, it touted itself as being a, a, a union town. It always has. And Joe Biden called himself the union candidate. And then Pittsburgh overwhelmingly voted for Joe Biden. So you can understand what kind of union Pittsburgh is kind of like ready to yeah. have in a lot of cases, which is oftentimes a very kind of toothless or class collaborationist type right. of setup. I'm not saying that's what the SEIU is in this particular instance, but I do know that that is a rampant problem in the city. And the, I yeah. mean, there are critiques levied against SEIU from, sure. from more like militant unionists that, that say that they're, they could do better. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, we're that, that's a critique for another time. This critique sure. that we're going to move into is that of one we do every week. That's right. The meme <laughs> review. That's right, folks. <laughs> bow, 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 bow. Get your air horns ready, my friends. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so this first one, we got one of these cute little bird comment, comics. I don't actually know what the, the name of this comic series is. It looks like it's called um, pinkwug.live, or at least that's where it's hosted. <laughs> yeah, that, that's where it's hosted. But um, yeah, so you've got the, the these uh, little pink birds with, uh, you know, little... Well, like scally caps on in the, in, in your, the, and you can tell they're at a factory because there's huge gears behind them. <laughs> One of them's holding a Just, wrench and they have a uh, yes. bandage and little scuff marks on them. Like, like workers. Yep. Uh, and yeah. so 
It's the first panel. It's a three panel comic and it's captioned the problem with capitalism. And then it's got the, the one little, uh, bird, like talking to the other worker bird being like, Hey, we should go get drinks. Cause they got their little like beer logo. And then the next one it's it. Now it's four worker birds together. And it says, and so continues the caption. The problem with capitalism is that you eventually, and now it shows the worker birds at the pub talking away. They got that little handshake up talking about mm-hmm. working together. And so in the final one is that you've got the, the little blue bird with the, the top hat on the, the CEO bird, <laughs> the Twitter logo. <laughs> and now you've got the gears, but where's the worker birds? They're not there. And there's actually now a big sign jammed into the gears, stopping them up. This says union on strike. And so it finishes the caption with the problem with capitalism is that you eventually run out of other people's labor. That's right. <laughs> I love that because it's the it's the capitalist uh, joke on on socialists. Like the problem with socialism is that sometimes you run out of other people's money or whatever. This is like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, a that's, that's a quote. Oh, is a, it actually that's a bullshit? Yeah, it's a Margaret Thatcher. Quote. I didn't know if it was actually a Thatcher quote or if it was just one of those quotes that someone attributed to like Thatcher or Nancy Reagan or something at some point, and it just like stayed that way on the internet. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, 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 I've always heard it attributed to Thatcher and Thatcher was horrible. So yeah. whatever, I'll, I'm, I'm fine with attributing yeah, yeah. it to her. Honk yeah. if Thatcher's dead. <laughs> <Honk>. <laughs> but yeah, no, this is, this is very true. This is a very good lesson. And, and when I appreciate this bird comic for showing folks, uh, you know, how we respond to capitalism. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, I appreciate this next meme for revealing <laughs> the age of all the hosts that we remember when the TV show Friends was on actual television. Uh, and it's got, it's just Phoebe is in all the left panels and Joey is in all the right panels. Am I getting the names right here? Yeah. Yep. And she's yeah. saying, she, she says reduce and he says reduce. She goes employee and he goes employee she says workloads and Joey's like workloads and she says reduce employee workloads and then Joey says mental health webinar. <laughs> yeah, like oh, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's like yeah. Yeah, or, or if you're Amazon, it's you know, the the like Amazon the worker depression booth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> go go sit in the happy box. <laughs> yeah. Which is uh yeah, I I thought only hockey players had to do that shit. Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, no, this is a perfect illustration of HR mentality right here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Reduce employee workloads, slapping the table pizza party. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Uh, the next one we have is an, uh, advertisement for Google, uh, which is (laughs) just like, I don't know. They they're they're recruiting and and so they have this list. It's like work from Central Park, work from a cabin out upstate, work from your bed, and then but this list of like places that you can work from is just like because it's like we do remote work and the there's an addition in marker below that just says work work work. Sounds like you need a union. Hell and, yeah. Uh, you should. Everybody should go out there and deface all of this fucking shitty propaganda. Like. Yeah, like look, I don't look fucking... around for the cameras, you know. Pull pull your mask up and your hood down, and 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 go ahead and 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 do some uh do some alterations, S- yeah. some unauthorized art. Yeah, that's what I'm fucking talking about. Because also, like, 
it is an insidious ad to list like 12 places you could work for Google that are not an office because they offer the flexibility of remote work. I can sit in a dumpling shop and spend my own money while I make some tech CEOs richer. Oh, how I fucking exciting. <laughs> what they're really saying is like, if you want to work for us, you don't get an office. You're just some fucking peon. Like, we'll call yeah, you well, when you're in the shower. We don't care. Like, it's it's valorizing the eradication of work-life separation. Yes. It's like, you should be excited about the fact that you can work from anywhere. And it's like, what no. person yeah. <laughs> would be excited by that? Yeah, like, I mean, like, look, I'm I'm fairly Marxist, I would say. I'm not averse to the idea that, like, labor is necessary in sure, a society, same. but let's be real. I don't dream of working. My goals and aspirations are not like, man, I wish I had a great job. It's, I wish I didn't have to fucking work. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's be honest about what people actually want. <laughs> yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, like there, there is the whole thing of like, when you decommodify things and, 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 you know, pull people out of wage labor and you actually reorganize production, sure. you know, so that it favors society, you give people the opportunity for work to be self-actualizing. Right. Right. Uh, and, and obviously not to get like utopian about it. If, like it's not going to be like, Oh, we press the socialism button and then everybody is extremely happy at work all the time. It's right. like, no, it's a, like a long process to develop, you know, I, something like that. But still I mean, you, 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 you see a microcosm of it in American society already though. Like a lot of people, if they were like, you know, teachers or they worked really hard at a decently paying job for a long time or whatever, and they retire, they have money and they have absolutely zero fucking incentive to work. A lot of them get really deeply involved in their community because they yeah. enjoy it and it fulfills them and it's a good use of their time. And they're still putting in work, right? I, but are they working, you know, and it, it's, right. it's a stupid semantic difference, but I do feel like getting people to feel like they're, putting in work instead of working, if that distinction makes any sense at all, is kind of important because like you want people to feel, I guess it's just the elimination of alienation, right? You should be able yes. to be yeah. like in touch with the product of your labor. Yeah. Well, it's like the difference between, even if you're doing relatively the same job, mm -hmm. working at a normal privately owned business that you have in the U S and this isn't even like comparing it to socialism, sure. but compared to working at a worker owned co-op, right? where you have a democratic say in how your workplace is run and what everyone's doing. And, you know, it's not set up to grind everyone into the fucking ground so that one or two people can make all the money off of them. Just that change in the relations of production can have such an improvement, like, on your, because, like, what you're working for fundamentally changes. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so this next one... <laughs> Is a is maybe a bit less of a intellectually heady uh, meme. Are you kidding me? This guy's so, in a suit. This is a very like this guy knows what he's talking about. This is, is this, um this is, is this a photo Gus of Spring. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's Giancarlo Esposito. Um, <laughs> you know, this is this is one of those. I've seen this format. I feel like this is like this for, this picture of 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 Giancarlo Esposito is is often used for those like Sigma grind set memes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where where it's it's one of those it's just like I only sleep four hours a night so I can grind four extra hours or, or some <laughs> yeah. some bullshit like that, but it's, he's 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 like a he's got this like really like really nice uh, tailored suit on he's like adjusting his tie, and it's captioned in I don't know if this is impact font but it's close to it, and it's just 
I never poop for free. I wait till Monday and take a shit on company time. That's right, buddy. That's right. <laughs> That's Saving up everything I need to do till I'm clocked in. I mean, for real, though, <laughs> if you can do anything on the clock, do it. I used to get so much when I worked clocked my fucking in valet and clogged job. up. I'm ready to let this one loose. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know what? Never mind what I was saying. Roll with that. <laughs> Making sure to drink a whole jar of olive juice before I punch in. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I'll be in the bathroom all day. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm just imagining uh, like a crypto bro using like a spreadsheet to like optimize their shit schedule. <laughs> you don't even have to be a crypto bro. That uh, That's such a better use of like stati- statistics Fair. brain than crypto. If you, if you were a real Sigma male grinder, you would go out there and get 19 jobs where you don't really have to be present for any of them and pretend to be in the bathroom at all of them at the same time. Yeah. You make well, way more money than on Ethereum. Yeah. And just in case you um, do end up leaving the restroom uh we have another meme that prepares you for the rest of your work day and mm-hmm. uh and like with uh, the the lenin cringing meme last week uh we have the uh, an homage to what's his name again harold harold right <laughs> the the guy who looks like he's permanently cringing uh yep. he's sitting at a at a table with with the laptop and it's uh it says me pretending to work this week while i'm oh no sorry let me redo that uh me pretending to work this week while i wait on the proletarian revolution and it's him uh like looking at the at the camera saying haha yes business and such and the computer is labeled fancy business document (laughs) 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 and like i do think though this is a good illustration of the whole idea where like the idea in u.s culture where it's like you're supposed to be so invested in whatever your job is. And it's like the, the idea that you may be paid $18 an hour after working at a place for 22 years, Mm -hmm. but you're supposed to have this personal drive and, and stake in whatever it is that you're doing. it's like, that is, no, <laughs> that's not how this works. That doesn't make sense. It's like, just fucking lie and pretend like you're working and do, as we've said in the past, do the absolute minimum that you like work to the level of how they are compensating you, which pretty much always is way too goddamn low. Yeah. That's you should right. be making the hide the pain Harold face all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Let him know. Yeah. Well, uh, that's the episode for this week. If you'd like to support our work, you can uh, support us at patreon.com slash workstoppage and uh, join us in the Discord where you can see all these memes. You can get other worker news and other sorts of analysis on how to do organizing. Uh, drop us some reviews, like us on all of the different places. We've got a Facebook page. We've got the twitter.com, the, the work at work stoppage pod. You can also follow John at Facebook villain. You can listen to John's other podcast, beep, beep, lettuce, Dan's other podcast, red game table, the podcast that I edit and help produce, uh, notes on the crises. And as always, we will see you next week. Labor peace is not in our interest. Solidarity forever. Solidarity out there. Solidarity, everybody. Thatcher's dead. Thanks for six hundred bits, mate. He's a honk. Honk for Thatcher's dead. Honk of Thatcher's dead. Honk of Thatcher's dead. Let's zoom in, everybody, for the big moment. We're going to find out 
is Thatcher dead? Let's find out. Hog if Thatcher's dead. Let's find out. I say yes. Thank you.